When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Soundtrack Show with David W. Collins is about to begin. Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, The Wolfman, The Phantom of the Opera, and more. Universal Pictures created some memorable monsters almost a century ago. And by examining their creation, we can also examine the evolution of movie music. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and on this episode, we're going to take in the thrills and chills of the music of classic monsters from Universal Studios, including Dracula, Frankenstein, The Wolfman, and more. Starting in the early 1930s, just a few short years after talkies went mainstream and the silent movie era came to a close in 1927, Universal Studios discovered huge success by shocking and delighting audiences with horror films. By taking a listen to them, we can track the progression of film music from the early talkie days into its full maturity over just a few years. And what we will hear today will fill us with ghoulish delight. But first, some history. Universal Studios was founded in 1912 by German-born Carl Lemley, who came to America in 1884 and started a moving picture company in Chicago in 1906, realizing that this was an amazing, exciting business to be a part of. He was a pioneer in many ways and is credited by some for really coming up with the idea of a contained movie lot where you could achieve all aspects of a movie's production. He created Universal Studios in the same location that it sits today, and produced classic silent films such as The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera. We'll talk about that in a bit. Interestingly enough, even as far back as the silent era, Carl Lemley considered Universal to be an entertainment company in every aspect of the word, meaning that even the lot, the movie lot, should be open for entertainment to the public. That's right, the future theme park Universal Studios has been open to curious movie fans since the silent era. There were galleries built around and above film sets where the public could watch a film being shot with some of their favorite silent film stars. 
Guests were even encouraged to boo the villains and cheer the heroes while cameras were rolling, as there was no sound being captured. And it even helped enhance the performances of the actors, who had an audience even when filming a movie. By the late 1920s, being the beloved family man that he was, Carl Lemley had groomed his son, Carl Lemley Jr., to start taking over the business. And Carl Jr. wanted to produce horror films. After all, Universal had a huge success with the 1925 silent film The Phantom of the Opera, starring Lon Chaney in the title role, with his famously self-applied makeup and terrifying appearance. By the way, interesting fact, that set for The Phantom of the Opera, the Opera House set, remained standing along the side walls of Stage 28 at the Universal lot until it was finally disassembled in 2014. But it remains intact in storage, the oldest existing movie set in history. But back to Carl Jr. He began producing horror movies anew in 1930, with the first major Universal classic released in 1931. Dracula, starring Hungarian-born actor Bela Lugosi in the title role. The movie was a big hit. It was released on Valentine's Day in 1931 and was marketed as a romantic horror movie. Bela Lugosi was dashing and terrifying at the same time. And the style of Dracula, his costume, his movement, the whole aesthetic of the film set is what gives us our very classic American look for Halloween with its gothic castles, its coffins, its giant spider webs, bats, wolves, and creatures of the night, including Dracula with his black cape, sharp dress, and slicked back hair. Clocking in at about just an hour and ten minutes, Dracula had everything. It had humor. It had horrors. It had romance. It had Bram Stoker's famous cast of characters. And yet, would you believe it? It had virtually no music. Other than the title cards at the very beginning of the movie and the very end of the movie, the film is completely musicless. And it's not even original music that was written for those pieces. For the title card, we hear a fragment of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, repurposed here as Dracula's theme. Let's take a listen. That's it. The rest of the movie is all dialogue captured on set, and some synchronized sound effects here and there. And in 1931, recordings were still very noisy. In fact, as part of their 100-year restoration project, Universal cleaned up the original Dracula negatives and cleaned up the original sound. Here's a comparison of how the movie sounded versus what it's like when much of the analog noise is removed. The picture that you won't be able to see in this coming up clip is a camera dollying in on Bela Lugosi in his crypt as his wives awake from their coffins. It's actually an amazing creepy shot. 
But it's so eerie because it's almost completely silent. There's a lot of noise that, that exists in the original soundtrack. When we listen to the raw track, there's just a, a horrible hiss throughout that entire picture. Now we really get to hear the movie in a clarity that's never been heard before. Amazing, isn't it? A movie with sound, with recorded sound, with, with like, no music in it. Now, you may be asking, why bring this up on the soundtrack show, a movie with no music? Because it serves as a stark demonstration of where movie music has been and how it grew out of nothing into the rich tradition that we have today, starting with silence. Here's a clip of Renfield entering the castle and meeting Dracula at the Grand Staircase for the first time, before he goes insane. Listen to how empty this clip is compared to modern movies. I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Listen to those howling wolves in the background. You can actually hear that those are actors howling off-set, off-stage. You can practically hear the room of the soundstage in the recording. Listen to them. Children of the night. Very primitive by today's standards. What music they make. These movies sound like theater pieces. What's fascinating about watching these movies from a historical perspective is that you get a sense of what theatergoers were used to back then. It's hard for modern audiences like us to realize this, but this movie actually terrified moviegoers. I imagine the whirring of the projector, the munching of movie snacks, the nervous giggles and gasps of the theater provided much of the soundtrack, because it isn't necessarily in the movie or synchronized to the movie itself. In this way, experiencing the 1931 Dracula is much like going to see live theater, which is interesting because many people who entered the movie business, both in front of and behind the camera, came from Broadway or London's West End Theater, including Lugosi himself, who had played the role live in theater production several times before appearing in this universal classic. And you know, music has a way of dictating how you feel about something. Is this movie scary? Is it funny? Like most horror classics, the answer is yes, it's both. And in Dracula, the lack of music means you decide for yourself. You fill in the blanks, and you bring your own interpretation to it. To demonstrate, I want to play some of the top of the movie. Let's take a listen. Some of the rugged peaks that frown down upon the Gorgon Pass are found crumbling castles of a bygone age. I say, driver, a bit slower. No, no. We must reach the inn before sundown. And why, pray? It is Valpurgis night, the night of evil, Nosferatu. Now, in 1999, the Kronos Quartet produced a full score to this classic with music by the great composer Philip Glass. It's a beautiful score. But whether you love the movie with this score or you don't, it's not hard to argue that it fundamentally changes the tone of the movie. I say, driver, a bit slower. No, no. We must reach the inn before sundown. And why, pray? It is Valpurgis night, the night of evil, Nosferatu. 
this night, madame, the gods, we are apart, and to the virgin, we pray. To my ear, that is a completely different experience. Quick side story about the music to Dracula and its use of Swan Lake. In 1993, director Tim Burton teamed up with composer Howard Shore and made a movie that I just love called Ed Wood, starring Johnny Depp in the title role. It's a wonderful story about mid-century Hollywood, where director Ed Wood befriends a down-on-his-luck Bella Lugosi in an Oscar-winning performance by Martin Landau, years after Lugosi made his classic monster movies and was a star as Dracula. It's a wonderful score by Howard Shore, influenced greatly by the sci-fi films of the 1950s, but in order to underscore the tragedy of Bela Lugosi, who is older, broke, and has a drug addiction in this film, Shore quotes Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake to emphasize the sorrow of the fallen star. Let's take a listen. They're canceling my unemployment. It's all I've got. Without it, I can't pay the rent. Don't you have any savings? Eddie, I'm obsolete. I have nothing to live for. Tonight, I should die. Eddie? You should come with me. I don't think that's such a good idea. It's a wonderful idea. It'll be wonderful. We'll be at peace. In the afterlife, you don't have to worry about finding work. Bella, I'm on your side. Hey, whose crazy idea was it to bury him in the cape? I heard it was in the will. It was how he wanted to be remembered. Of course, this is just a dramatization, but it demonstrates to me the power of music. How even though Swan Lake was written decades before in 1876 as a ballet by Tchaikovsky, film fans and horror film fans identify this theme with Lugosi's Prince of Darkness. Universal's 1931 Dracula is a classic. While modern audiences may not find it scary, it's still visually stunning and is a landmark achievement in the history of Universal Pictures, as it marked the beginning of a series of cultural icons that would emerge from their horror films. But nobody expected just how monstrous of a hit Universal's next movie would be. And now for a brief intermission. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
We return now to the soundtrack show. In 1931, Dracula flew into theaters and delighted movie-going audiences. But that wasn't the only horror movie to come out from Universal in 31. Later that year, a star was born. Or should I say reborn? No, animated. No, resurrected? Probably the most famous monster of all time to emerge from Universal's dark universe, Frankenstein, a movie from 1931 directed by James Whale, was a mega hit. And it made a bona fide movie star out of actor Boris Karloff, who wore a makeup design that is so famous that it's woven into our cultural zeitgeist. Ooh, bonus points for me for working in the word zeitgeist into this podcast. <laughs> Frankenstein, for its time, was shocking. A mad scientist playing God. Karloff was frightening. The makeup was incredible, designed by the Rick Baker of his time, Jack Pierce, Finished off by Karloff removing his dentures on the right side of his face, giving his makeup a ghoulish, sunken look, in wonderful contrast to his intimidating height. But again, with Frankenstein, no music. Well, almost no music. Like Dracula, we're treated to a little bit at the top. And then the movie is musicless. Almost. There is one scene where the villagers are dancing and we hear source music from the party. In my soundtrack show episode, all about the great composer Max Steiner, I mentioned that underscore, music underscore, really didn't exist in talking pictures early on, which is ironic since silent films were filled with music provided in each and every local theater. It wasn't until 1932-ish that we start seeing true examples of film underscore, such as Steiner's score for The Symphony of Six Million. So in 1931, we're given yet another horror movie, Frankenstein, with almost no music. But it's not nearly as quiet as Dracula. For its time, Frankenstein featured some pretty intense sound and sound editing, particularly for Dr. Frankenstein's lab. This movie features a man playing God, as it were, Dr. Frankenstein, a reimagining of Mary Shelley's classic novel. And Universal was actually concerned that it might be too shocking or maybe even blasphemous for a 1931 movie-going audience. So much so that they opted to actually open the movie with a warning. At the beginning of the film, this older, kindly gentleman 
steps out from behind a curtain in a movie theater, a kind of theater-within-a-theater effect for movie-going audiences, and gently preps the audience for the horrors that are going to shortly unfold. Let's take a listen. How do you do? Mr. Carl Emily feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. Fascinating by today's standards. By the way, this moment was hilariously parodied in an early episode of The Simpsons' Treehouse of Horror specials, with Marge coming out from behind the curtain to apologize for what her family was about to put us through. Hello, everyone. Before last year's Halloween show, I warned you not to let your children watch. But you did anyway. Hmm. Well, this year's episode is even worse. It's scarier, more violent, and I think they snuck in some bad language, too. So please, tuck in your children and... Hmm. Well, if you didn't listen to me last time, you're not going to now. Enjoy the show. It's worth mentioning that Frankenstein did have a humorous side to it as well. And this is something that director James Whale became known for. A dark sense of humor. But more on that later. Back to Frankenstein. It was a big hit for Universals. A smash hit. And it made Boris Karloff a star. And director James Whale a very sought-after talent around the studio. Clamoring for a sequel, Universal tried to get Whale to make one as quickly as possible for Frankenstein. But it just didn't happen for a few years. In the meantime, other films and other monsters began to make their appearances. Karloff starred in a 1932 film called The Mummy, where a group of English archaeologists in the 1920s discover a mummy of Imhotep, a cursed mummy who comes to life after they accidentally read a passage to an old scroll. Karloff runs free as the mummy. Ten years later, in the present day, after all the movie came out in 1932, Karloff is passing himself as a normal person while secretly searching for Anaxunamun, his lost love, for which he was punished and mummified while still alive thousands of years before. Does this sound familiar, by the way? It should to those who saw The Mummy, starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz in 1999. This movie featured an amazing score, by the way, from the legendary Jerry Goldsmith. But unlike that more recent version, the Karloff version of The Mummy featured very little music. In fact, while there is some vaguely Egyptian-sounding music in the film, the opening credits played it safe. 
you'll hear what I mean. Let's take a listen. That's right. Universal reused Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake for the main titles of The Mummy. Though there is more music in this film than there was in Dracula. We're starting to hear the art of film scoring slowly progress as filmmakers discover the power of synchronized music in film. But even then, the idea of making original music specifically for a film was still in its very early days. But all of this was about to change. Though Universal was desperately trying to get James Whale to make a sequel to Frankenstein, he opted to make another movie instead. 1933's The Invisible Man, starring Claude Rains, was a huge step forward not just in visual effects, but in the film scoring world. It features much more robust title music, for one. Let's listen. More than that, towards the end of the film, we begin to hear real sequences of dramatic underscore, especially as the party searching for the Invisible Man slowly discovers his hiding place while he sleeps. But I don't want to give away the end of the film. Let's just say that director James Whale really starts experimenting with the power of music in The Invisible Man. After all, 1933 is the same year that Max Steiner revolutionized film music with his score for King Kong. We can see how, through the early 30s, film scores really started to take shape. Back to the subject of humor. Oh, The Invisible Man is a great film. While there was a little humor in the original Frankenstein, humor really starts to become a real staple in James Whale's films, starting with The Invisible Man. In The Invisible Man, we're treated to actress Una O'Connor practically chewing the scenery as the innkeeper's wife, and actor Claude Rains' performance as the Invisible Man himself is completely over the top. Let's listen. Let's leave him a bit, Jenny, till he cools off. Go on, do it now. If you don't kick him out, I'm clearing out myself, and that's the truth. And I mean it this time. Where is he? He's upstairs in the sitting room. <laughs> 
He's in there, in the sitting room. He's homicidal. Oh. all this keep back there keep back me do you know who you're talking to i give you a last chance to leave me alone come on get all of him lock him up all right you fools you've brought it on yourselves you're crazy to know who i am aren't you all right i'll show you i'll show you who i am and what i am <laughs> Look, he's all eaten away. Huh? How do you like that, eh? <laughs> I love that police officer, too. That's so hilarious. This combination of music and humor worked so well for James Whale that they became the crucial ingredients to the biggest hit of his career and arguably the most important horror film to ever come out of this era. We'll discuss it in detail right after the break. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, with a film score by Franz Waxman, is perhaps the most important horror movie of the 1930s. Not only as a masterpiece of horror and camp, the movie is filled with a dark sense of humor, and while still tragic, doesn't take itself too seriously, providing laughs here and there along with its dark subject matter. The movie also features a very important film score from the 1930s by composer Franz Waxman. Franz Waxman, like Eric Wolfgang Korngold or Max Steiner, is an important figure in the golden age of Hollywood and its film scores. Bride of Frankenstein was his first big Hollywood break, having moved from his native Germany to Paris, then to Hollywood, after a horrible incident where he was brutally beaten on the streets of Berlin in 1934 by Nazi sympathizers, just for being Jewish. So he left the German film industry and was discovered by James Whale in Hollywood, who adored the music for one of his earlier pictures, the French movie Lilium. The result was Bride of Frankenstein. The movie is a film score masterpiece, featuring themes for Frankenstein's monster, the Bride of Frankenstein, Dr. Pretorius, and more. It highlights and contextualizes the action. It follows the movie very closely, painting the mood for each and every scene. The crowning touch in Bride of Frankenstein's artistry was the inspired musical score by Franz Waxman. You've got a first-rate cast in an extremely well-written script uh, with a tremendous musical score, one of the most important Hollywood scores of the mid-30s by Franz Waxman. For the opening sequence of uh, Byron and Shelley uh, on the stormy evening at the villa, uh, Waxman wrote a very charming period-styled minuet 
which speaks of the life of, of ease and delicacy that we see depicted. And as the, uh, the flashback story is told by Byron, you know, what is setting in the churchyard, he evolves into a, a, into a huge fugue uh, to illustrate the, the horrors and, and terrors of the original story before returning back uh, to the minuet that, that sets us pretty much with period parlor music. And there is an awful lot of, of commentary through the music, you know, sometimes impish, sometimes emotionally reinforcing, but like so much that's in this film, heightened. The basic structure of Waxman's score is Wagnerian. He uses motives for each of the major characters or sequences. Uh, these are thematic building blocks which can introduce or herald each character's entrance or imply their presence off camera when they aren't present. Almost operatically, isn't it? Um, the, the leitmotif approach where you have a, a particular phrase or melody associated with a person, one character or a different character. The monster has a four-note motive which seems to be patterned upon his growl. It would almost seem that Waxman had observed this in the performance and deduced that from it. Uh, the bride herself has a very exotic, high-flown, three-note melody. which is very open-ended and uh, is allowing it to be utilized in many different forms. We first hear it uh, narrative-wise when Pretorius speaks of her imminent birth. Friend for you, woman. Friend, yes. Dr. Pretorius, who is the, uh, the kind of Mephistophelian interloper, he's a figure both of, of humor and tremendous evil, has a, a uh, very mad, loping theme. It portends uh, all kinds of things to come. Uh, it usually resolves with a small coda after that, which is again open-ended and unresolved. You never quite know what Pretorius is going to do or where his actions will lead. Let's take a listen to a modern recording of the overture to The Bride of Frankenstein. wonderful use of dissonance in the monster's main theme. One, two, three. Those are two, uh, th those are half steps played right next to each other. Nice tension there. And I love the use of Lydian to add allure and beauty to the bride's theme. Oh, it's a wonderful movie filled with glorious music, campy performances, and of course, tragic horror. And it was a monumental hit for Universal. It truly was the jaws of its time, in a way, before the film industry had a tradition of blockbusters. A hugely anticipated sequel to the 1931 original, with Karloff back in his famous role, even with the famous makeup by Jack Pierce back in action. 
Though film historians often point out that Karloff is even bigger and more menacing in Bride of Frankenstein than he was in the original, as he was now famous and was no longer a starving actor. For a few years prior to filming this movie, he could now afford to eat. As an interesting postscript to The Bride of Frankenstein, that Franz Waxman film score was reused quite a bit in various other films and TV shows. Most famously, it was reused heavily in the Flash Gordon serials with Buster Crab, as was Heinz Romheld's music for The Invisible Man. In this way, the music of Universal Monster movies is a direct influence on films like Star Wars, as George Lucas and other directors of his generation were heavily influenced by this music as children. Reuse and patchwork film scores, meaning film scores by multiple composers featuring original and repurposed music, were common practice in Hollywood in the 1930s. And though we start to see whole film scores made specifically for big-budget films, like Waxman's Bride score, we also have a lot of 30s and 40s film scores that were this patchwork by multiple composers, and sometimes with great results. I give you the work of Hans Salter and Frank Skinner, whose work, along with musical director Charles Previn, gave us a really cool score for The Wolfman, in 1941, starring Lon Chaney Jr. and a very young Gloria Stewart, who today is most famous for her role as the elderly Rose in James Cameron's Titanic. This score also featured wonderful themes or leitmotifs for the Wolfman and other characters and gives us emotional context for different scenes and situations, pinpointing the tragedy of the main character, Chaney's Larry Talbot. In this way, the Wolfman is directly influenced by Waxman's Bride score, and when watching The Wolfman, you can really hear the stylistic similarities. Let's take a listen to a more modern recording of The Wolfman's score. Universal monster movies continued for decades, and the music kept on maturing. I think of Edward Ward's wonderful score for the 1943 remake of The Phantom of the Opera, starring Claude Rains as the Phantom. Here's a great example of a film score by a single composer with a single vision who wrote something wonderful. And because we were in the middle of World War II at the time, music rights were very hard to obtain especially for European operas, so most of the opera music that is sang in the film was actually written by Ward specifically for the movie, 
including a piano concerto and a beautiful, almost Smetana-inspired folk theme for the main character. Now, due to lack of time, I can't go into it on this episode, but if you're a fan of Phantom of the Opera, it's worth checking out for the film music alone, even though this version is not nearly as famous as the 1925 Lon Chaney silent film version, or, of course, the hugely popular Andrew Lloyd Webber musical from the 1980s. The last film that I want to cover is from 1954, the universal classic The Creature from the Black Lagoon. When a man in camp at all times, police will be in charge. It's a wonderful monster movie that was originally presented in theaters in 3D, which is a new fad in the 1950s cooked up by movie studios to get audiences going to movies again, as there were almost 10 million television sets in American homes by 1950. And Black Lagoon also was the first 3D film to be shot underwater, with long, beautiful black and white sequences of the monster and other characters diving through the water. But what makes Black Lagoon such an interesting case study for us here on the Soundtrack Show is how heavily it relies on music. Almost to the point where, in the eyes of some, it almost overdoes it. Creature's highly dramatic musical score contributed materially to the film's success. In addition to library themes, original music was provided by three composers, Henry Mancini, Hans J. Salter, and Hermann Stein. One thing it has which sets it apart from most of the other pictures is it has a theme that is just beaten to death. You can hardly get a single view of them without the theme sounding, and I think it sounds about 130 times in the picture. While dramatically effective, the use of a composite score was not the preferred method of working for most composers. What I like about Creature's score is it is, it's a marvelous patch job of a score. Uh, it takes music from horror films of the 40s like The Wolfman and Ghost of Frankenstein. It takes westerns like the James Stewart Bend of the River. It takes all of these disparate elements, combines them with original music, and somehow shuffles them together, re-records them, and makes this score unlike any of the other universal horror sci-fi pictures. And uh, I, I kind of like the way everything somehow hangs together. Everyone thinks they watch it and they hear their favorite creature music, and they're always shocked when they find out, well, no, this music was originally written to accompany a scene where a doctor is curing a sick horse. As you can tell, Black Lagoon's film music is a far cry from Dracula, which featured almost no music at all. But even the fragments that Dracula contained had a powerful effect on audiences. If you sit and watch these movies chronologically, as we've discussed them here in this episode, you can really, really hear the evolution of film scores, from having virtually no music in 1931 to having wall-to-wall music by the early 50s, all against a fascinating backdrop of horror movie characters that are now iconic fixtures in our modern culture. And this is just a taste, a bloody taste, of the music from this genre. These movies were so successful that they spawned seemingly endless sequels, not always as good as the originals in many cases, but these sequels and some remakes are still being released today, and some of them are amazing. Some of these movies include, over the years, Dracula, 
Son of Dracula, Son of Frankenstein, House of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, multiple versions of The Mummy, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and comedies like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man, and the list continues on and on. Through different film genres, we start to see, or more accurately, hear, how film scoring evolved into the rich musical tradition that we've enjoyed now for decades. Thank you.